What's going on, y'all? Welcome to Looking Ahead to Beto Days. I am Chris, here with my awesome co-host, Ryan. This is our one-year anniversary show, um, kind of. Not like, and we've been doing the show for a year, and before we, we, we jumped on, it's just so much shit has happened. And also, by the way, uh, we have Beto O'Rourke here. <laughs> hey. <laughs> so thanks for joining us, Beto. Really appreciate you taking the time out to <laughs> hop to, on with us. <laughs> to, uh, to, to join us. And yeah. also thank you for not sending a cease and desist letter since I used your name in the title of the show. <laughs> much appreciated. So uh, that's kind of what we're here. And just before we get started, um, the show has meant a lot to me for the last year. Me and Ryan have done a lot of work on it. We've been to all sorts of things. I mean, Ryan went to Steak Fry. He went to uh, the JJ. He's been through, we've been everywhere, just trying to make sure we bring you guys all this great information and, and keep you up to date on what's going going on in the uh, the world. But without further ado, ado Beto, welcome. Um, Thanks for having me on. I, I uh, First of all, congratulations on one year. And when we started to talk before you began recording, um, and you said that it's been one year, that, that really hits me because um, you're right, so much has happened. It feels like in some ways 10 years, in some ways it feels like no time at all. Mm -hmm. And the number of people that I've had the chance to meet through the campaign and then through Powered by People and then through everything that's affiliated or connected or in some tangential way associated has forever changed my life and, and done so for the, the better. I, I, I get to be part of this extraordinary community of people who are so selfless and so bound by service to the country and the greater good. And in these very dark days, and these are some really dark days, it's cause for, for hope and for optimism. So Thank you both for being such a big part of it and for everything you did to contribute to our success and to the success that we hope to be a part of going forward with what we're doing in mm -hmm. Texas right now. It's a, it's a huge honor to be with you. So, well, the honor's ours, obviously. Oh, thank you for, thank I, you I for joining. Even, I mean, we wouldn't, you know, I mean, we, we, thing. this community wouldn't have existed if you didn't, you know, step up and do what you did and set an example for, for a lot of people. And, you know, I think that really speaks to what we created was that it has lasted so much longer and it's grown more, more than, than, you know, we're no longer just supporting a politician anymore. We're really almost become a movement in and of itself. And I think there's a lot of strength and a lot of power for that. And so thank you for kicking us off. <laughs> Hopefully we can keep going, you and, know, absolutely. You know, starting the movement as a whole, like I said, we've, we met mm -hmm. lots of great people. Um, you know, we've had so many people from the Beto movement have gone on and, and mm -hmm. done great things. You know, um, we've had project PPE on here. I'm working on, a, a, I, I run my own nonprofit that was completely inspired by this called the radical hope project. We've done all sorts of stuff just yeah. it's been incredible so without you know 
just talking about the last year for a while or the whole show, let's talk about powered by people. Um, mm-hmm. It's it, you guys were doing so much with getting out and knocking doors and everything kind of slowed down. Um, like, how did you, how did you, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is how did you decide how you were going to move it forward? Like as yeah. everything was shutting down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because powered by people was premised on the success that we all just described, this, this community that we've all built together. And, and you're right, it, not about a person or a candidate or even a campaign, um, but about all of us and what we want to do together for this country. It's funny, I was, um, I was doing this pitch uh, for Powered by People to some folks whose support I was trying to gain and I described, you know, we're, we're supporting these state house races in Texas, and there's nine seats that we need to uh, be able to win in order to have a majority. And here's what these races look like, and describing the volunteers and knocking on doors. And the person at the end of the, the pitch said, so what you're telling me is that you all are focused on building community. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting conclusion to draw from what I just shared with you. I thought that we were organized to win these elections, but she was really right. What the, the power of our organization comes not in the money that we raise or the money that we spend or advertisements that we could air. It, it comes from the people who have chosen to be a part of this. And uh, Chris, you're, you're right. Um, before COVID-19, that was going to take the form of all of these volunteers, tens of thousands of them who've been a part of our campaigns over the past three years, deployed to various state house districts in Texas, knocking on doors, uh, being the um, grassroots army that connects with the voters who will decide these important elections. Now, since we cannot physically be together, and it does not make any sense at all to be knocking on people's doors, we're having to, to turn that energy and that commitment and all those volunteer hours into other productive channels. And for us, that has largely come through these phone banks, massive phone banks that we are using to to do a number of things. One, we phone banked uh, the hell out of Texas to try to raise volunteers to staff the food banks in all 254 counties to serve our fellow Texans who are in, in really desperate straits right now. And I'm really happy to tell you that we have been able to um, staff 15,000 volunteer hours. Um, You know, we've raised a couple hundred thousand dollars from tens of thousands of unique donors, all of which went straight to these food banks. Mm -hmm. And now we're we're really focused on these phone banks calling unregistered, likely Democrats and helping them register to vote here in Texas. There's more than a million of them who've moved to the state just in the last three years and have yet to update their voter registration to Texas. Imagine if 50% or even 25% or or hell, even 10% of them were to register and vote. That that would tip the balance in our favor to win some of these statewide contests. So what we really did, much the same way that you're doing with this podcast, is we took the spirit and, and the best part of the campaign, which was not the candidate, uh, but was the, the people that comprised the movement. And that never has to end. And it can always be put to use for the good of the state in, in the case of Texas and also by extension, the country. So that is what Powered by People is, is doing right now. 
Awesome. So I got a real, I got a question for you. And this is um, kind of stepping back a little bit. And last time we interviewed, I actually had this question. We didn't get to it. And then and, you gave him a shiny cup and he went, ooh, shiny. Yeah, basically, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> got a good picture of it too. Um, <laughs> but so you decided to form uh, Powered by People as a political action committee. You ran as a Senate and, uh, and president, you know, all people, no PACs. Um, you know, I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about those two. Um, you know, what exactly, when you say all people's no PACs, what exactly do you see the issue with money in politics compared to how we're organizing under Powered by People? And I guess on a greater scale, if you could wave a magic wand and say, you know, okay, this is the real problem we're trying to address, you know, when I make these claims of all people, no PACs and that kind of stuff, you know, what are we really trying to get down to actually accomplishing? So, <laughs> yeah. so I had an extraordinary vantage point mm -hmm. on this issue while serving in Congress. And that allowed me to see colleagues from both sides of the aisle, Republicans as well mm -hmm. as Democrats, chasing money in order to finance their reelection, all ostensibly for honorable reasons, right? I need to get back in for another term in office so that I can work on passing this bill that's going to address access to health care for veterans in my district. Or uh, I want to protect the shipyard in, in my coastal community and getting on that defense committee and raising the money to show party leadership that I can make the most of my perch on that committee of influence and power is the way to do it. And so if that becomes your game, and that's, that's the, the pursuit of 99.9% .9 <laughs> of those members of Congress, do you ask people to contribute five or, or 10 bucks, or do you go to where the real big money is in these political action committees, which are essentially the political arms of corporations and pressure groups that are set up to influence the outcome of legislation and electoral politics, the, the course and direction that our country will take? Well, uh, given how valuable and limited the asset of time is, most members of Congress end up calling those political action committees that again, and very often are in service to, to corporations because they can give at five or $10,000 a pop. And, and this is the, the pernicious part of this. And it's not malicious, okay? This, this is not uh, done with malice, but, but it does have a pernicious outcome mm -hmm. on our democracy. The person, the PAC, most likely to donate to you is also the PAC that has pending legislation before your committee of jurisdiction. So if I'm on the defense committee, I'm gonna go hit up Raytheon and Boeing and Northrop Grumman and all those defense contractors. If I'm on energy and commerce, I go to the oil and gas companies or the telecom companies. Mm. Again, Republicans as well as Democrats do this. And you don't have to be a genius to see that this ends up perverting our democracy you by definition are spending time on the telephone with them at pack breakfasts, at fundraising events, and they've got your ear and they're able to influence to some degree the way that you see something and perhaps the way that you act on something. And as you both know, in some cases, they will even write the legislation for you to make it easy. And so for all of those reasons, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was now, maybe five, six years ago, I swore off any political action committee money. Mm -hmm. uh, some would say there are good PACs and bad PACs. I said, let's just make it easy and take no money from any PAC. 
and rely on people to donate. And as you all know, in, in the end, not only did we prove that ethically and morally that is the best path, it also happened to be the most successful path to raise money. We raised $80 million, not a dime of it from corporations or PACs, all of it from living, breathing human beings, very often five or $10 at a time. So your excellent question, Brian, why in the hell, Beto, did you then start a PAC in Texas? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, I knew that I wanted to bring this power of all the people who had comprised our campaigns, the 20,000 volunteers just in the Senate campaign in Texas alone, who picked up clipboards and uh, their phones and connected with voters that produced the largest voter turnout in Texas history, bar none. I wanted to make sure that we help these candidates for the state house who, uh, as Democrats, are going to be under-resourced and understaffed to be competitive and win those races so that we have a majority in the state legislature for the first time in 20 years. And yes, I want Texas to come into its own and help to decide the presidential election in our favor against Donald Trump with those 38 electoral college votes. And I searched high and low for every legal uh, organization uh, and structure that could possibly do this work. Could I, could I organize as a 501c3 or a 501c4? Yes, but uh, I could not engage primarily in political work. Well, I don't want to fuck around and play games with the law and pretend that I'm not doing political work when I am doing political work. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the only legal vehicle that allows me to raise and spend money organizing grassroots volunteers is a political action committee. And so I reached this point where I was like, do I, you know, make <laughs> my rhetorical purity on this point and not organize as a PAC and just not help out in Texas or do so under ostensibly nonprofit educational purpose terms and, and really be lying to myself and the rest of the state? Or do I just bite the bullet, buck up, and, and do the difficult thing is necessary to do right now? So having said all that, uh, if I were ever to be a candidate, again, I would not take money from PACs. This organization doesn't take any money from any other political action committees. Mm -hmm. it, it is all money from our fellow Americans. And um, so far, we've been very successful in what we've been able to raise in this grassroots way. But that's the very long answer to so your So I guess, do you think that that... So I guess a follow up on that is, do you think that's a f just like a deficit in the law that where, you know, there's just not a good alternative to a PAC or the PACs or, or the PACs are the appropriate alternative, but the corporations are now taking it and perverting it. Um, you know, do, do we need to set up separate rules for, for each individual? I mean, what do you think the solution here is? Yeah, I, I wonder. You know, both could be true. So like a 501c4, for example, as I understand it, some significant portion of the work that you do has to be focused on um, educational purposes. And then some part of that can then be used on political activity. Maybe, maybe there needs to be a readjustment of, of that balance. Maybe, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. or, um, or maybe a, a completely different new legal mechanism that allows people who want to facilitate grassroots organizing, knocking on doors or making phone calls or texting voters in Texas or any other state to be able to do that 
and, and not come under the label of a political action committee. But I think your, your other point is totally sound, which is, you know, PACs in and of themselves or that legal construct may not be evil, but it has been so successfully used mm -hmm. to evil ends for so long that my association, perhaps yours and others, is very negative with, with what PACs are. Um, and, and for me, when I was a member of Congress or a candidate for the Senate or the Democratic nomination for the presidency, the easiest, simplest thing for me to do was just to, to swear off sure. all PAC support uh, altogether. So yeah, maybe it's, it's any one of those things that could change. Yeah, because yeah, obviously the, the existing structure isn't working. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're talking spending over, you know, each candidate's going to spend over a billion dollars on a presidential run at the end of the day. That's insane. I mean, insane. you know, something, you know, we, we, and I think honestly, it's the same. One of my bigger frustrations with this is that, you know, I don't think that money should determine a president or who should be a proper president. I, I just, that just irritates me in so many, in so many ways that, money can, can be a deciding factor and things like that. So absolutely. But I guess you can't fix the, You can't fix the, uh, can't fix the flame while it's flying. So, you know, and we're in flight. Well, <laughs> I don't know because you can put as much money into politics and, you know, and I, I'm with both of you guys, but what I'm seeing from today's youth mm -hmm. is a big part of how we change shit like that. Right. You know, the the youth of America has really, really showed up to the point that my little brother is starting to ask questions. I'm 20 years older than my brother. My brother's 15 um, and he's starting to ask questions. And so you have a, this this movement in America that's that's being built um, up amongst the youth. And it really I saw it a lot really with the phone banking because I got on when we I would get on phone banks and kind of help out and, you know, help people, you know, do what they were doing, they are, you know, to be able to make phone calls. Um, there were a lot of young people, a lot of very young people. And um, so I, w I wanted to touch on that, like how in the grand scope of things, as things are changing, as, as America is in this great moment of flux with literally everything, it's like an atom bomb has gone off, um, literally. And, um, you know, how do those, how do those young people, continue to help build that change? How do we help them keep momentum, momentum that mm -hmm. is stifled literally every time? I watched 1968, the, uh, the, the documentary, and it plays like a fucking trailer for 2020. <laughs> and that, their, their momentum was stifled. How do we, how do we stop that? How do, we, how do we keep hope in young people? Yeah, it's such a good question. I, you know, my immediate answer is we should get out of the way. Um, because I think sometimes there is, and I'm uh, 47 years old, and so I don't know, it puts me kind of middle age or close to middle age, but I, I think very often from people of my generation uh, or my age or a little bit older, there's this paternalistic attitude towards young people. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you hear it in, uh, you are the, the future or, you know, you know, this is yours to inherit, or we're counting on you down the road. And I, I think that the reality, uh, and I hope you agree, and, and I think you do because you said it when you, when you were talking about who you saw in the phone banks, is that young people are, are leading on most of the important issues right now far better and more effectively and more powerfully than, than older people are. And that's to take nothing away from, from older people, right? Um, who, who groundwork for what some of these young people are doing right now. 
but the, the real energy, the real power I see on climate, um, on justice, on criminal justice right mm -hmm. now, um, on, you know, pick an issue. Um, it, it comes, there's an urgency and there's an intolerance for bullshit or status quo that young people possess that is so necessary for this to work. I mean, as we get older, we may become more accepting of excuses or waiting or more patient when perhaps what we need right now is impatience with the way things work or have failed to work for so long. And I love that you mentioned 1968. If we, if we go back from there, the 1950s and the 1960s civil rights movements and all of that building energy that, that really shook the consciousness of, of this country and in some ways kind of woke us up to how fucked up uh, America was for so many people who were denied the ability to vote or to, to buy a home or to receive a loan or to go to school or to do anything that so many other Americans who look like me could take for granted. We, we were, we were, you know, we were forced awake, right? And out of that came the Civil Rights Act and, and the Voting Rights Act. And this perception that progress was happening and maybe even to some degree inevitable. But then you mentioned 1968, and we look at the decades that follow, and it's a confirmation that it is not inevitable, and this will not roll forward towards a better end, that you've got to push it there. And no victory is ever complete or ever final. That struggle always continues. And yes, that might be tiring, uh, and, and yes, that may be unsatisfying, where we want to claim victory and mission accomplished behind us and wash our hands of the whole deal. But it just doesn't work like that, certainly not in a, in a democracy. And I think these uh, Black Lives Matters uh, protesters, mm -hmm. I think other civil rights protesters who are in the streets right now, they are reminding us of that. And, and frankly, they're giving me a ton of hope. And so many of them, as you know, are young, uh, which also relieves any fear I may have had that, um, you know, is the next generation going to be able to take this on? They are taking it on right now, no, far better than mm -hmm. any other generation. So get out of the way, uh, one thing, get behind them, another thing. And then whatever way we can be helpful in facilitating voter registration and voter protection, as you, as you all know, in Texas, this is the most successfully voter suppressed state in the union. And so often those who bear the are, um, are young people. Um, and so, um, anyhow, th those are some ideas on what we can do, but my, my total cause for optimism and faith in the future of this country is because of what, what those young people are doing. Oh, oh I agree. They were, they've been so much better, um, more active. And I wasn't 15. I mean, my parents were relatively, you know, they, they talked, they didn't really talk to us much about politics, but, um, you know, it was the, the, the awareness, just the general awareness of this next generation has been very, very impressive. Like just, unparalleled you haven't well, seen anything like it absolutely i mean i pay, I, I teach so i pick it up in the classroom mm -hmm. and these kids ask really good questions and they're yeah. aware and um you mentioned not getting them in got not getting in the way but there are going to be people who get in the way um i'm not gonna name drop just because you know i have to deal with them because it's family um <laughs> but my brother was told stop asking questions like don't ask questions we don't want you to ask questions like 
his response to that was, well, I have my first amendment rights and all that, which he gave this great fucking ask answer, man. I was super proud of him, but he, you know, you have people in familial units who are telling you, telling other kids mm-hmm. wrong information or telling them not to uh, ask questions. Like what kind of advice would you have for those young people? Yeah. I mean, um, again, I, I think they're doing it and, and they, there's a fearlessness to it that is um, so encouraging and inspiring. And again, um, shows the promise that we still have in, in this country. I mean, we've been having a, a debate about um, should this installation or park um, or sacred space in our city be named after a Confederate general or quote unquote war hero? Should we continue to have this, this statue in a place of public veneration for somebody who fought to enslave other human beings. And then you've got young people who are like, fuck it. I'm pulling it down. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I live in Virginia. You, you fuckers have had 150 years to figure this shit out and you have failed. And so um, let's do this. And so, you know, I, I think, um, I, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be encouraged by, but yeah, for, for, for young people, I, I would tell you never, ever, ever, ever wait your turn. Um, you know, you, you have no reason to be, patient right now. I think your urgency is giving us the best possible chance at the last best hope of this planet. And certainly, you know, never more true than when it comes to climate where that window is closing right before our eyes. Um, But it's gun violence. It is institutional racism. It's access to healthcare. It's you name it. And uh, so I would love at some point to talk to your brother and, uh, and um, you know, just um, get his take and, and, and learn and listen from him. But I've been spending a lot of time on Zoom calls and town halls with high school students, um, with college students, with young organizers all around the country, with, with journalism students and journalists. Um, and you know what, if you are ever tempted to feel down about the future of this country, just spend some time with them and that will buck you right back up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, I'm a teacher and I'm impressed by kids every day. You know, I teach 11 and 12 year olds, but they give me hope. Like, I'm like, all right, you know, my guys, we, we thought we, my generation, we thought we were going to come in and clean shit up. We real fucked up. So um, it's, you know, I'm behind you. You guys are the future. You guys are going to fix this. And also I live in Virginia where they tear, uh, and I live like right outside of Portsmouth, about like 20, 30 minutes away and in Richmond. And I was like watching on Twitter going fucking tear them all down. (laughs) And uh, they, they're tearing down Columbus too, which. Yeah. About time we got around to him too. It's been, it it, it has to. Yeah. Fuck Columbus. (laughs) There are so many. And I wonder if the uh, 11 and 12 year olds that you're spending time with ask these kind of questions, but you know, the, the veneration that we show for Thomas Jefferson, for example, which, which so often is unqualified, right? It, it is, you know, founding father, uh, author of the Declaration of, of Independence, you know, president who, who significantly expanded the, the territory of the United States. All these things to his credit, right? Um, but, but left out is the extraordinary moral failing, not just personally, uh, with Sally Hemings and the people that he enslaved and, and treated so horribly and the rape that he committed uh, against her. Um, but, but as a founding father or founding person of, of this country, um, to completely fail 
to address the most significant issue, which is the enslavement of our fellow human beings, especially given the fact that he wrote the words that, that we were all created equal and purported to, to stand behind a country that was going to treat everyone equally under law. Uh, I mean, I think these are the kind of questions that young people ask and that older people paper over and just say, you know what, I guess that's just the way it is. Uh, young people don't know any better, right, than to ask, so, like, why the hell are we venerating this dude uh, at, and not somebody else far more deserving? And, and I think those kind of questions are coming to the fore right now, and that's great news. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And they do. All oh, yeah. the time, because I talk about stuff like that. Like I'm not just everything that you said, you probably just talk about this, this and this. All of those are SOLs, every one of them. <laughs> and then that was all of the stuff you needed to know about Thomas Je Jefferson in the sixth grade. And then you get to Sally Hemings and they don't talk about it. Well, I have them watch video and we discuss all of that stuff because for what all of our heroes are, they still have, you know, uh, oh, sure. dents in their armor. Uh, you know, they're not perfect people, which makes them even that much more fascinating of how they came up with the things that they did and how, you know, badly they messed up. Right. We discussed you, that kind of stuff. But you even point out that it's, it's not necessarily, you know, the, the problem is, is like, yeah, we can acknowledge Andrew Jackson. We can acknowledge these people in this historically in the historical context for who he actually is. There's a difference between holding them in that historical context and then versus holding them in a place of honor by putting them by proudly displaying them in front of a courthouse or in front of a Capitol building where you're, saying this is a person who we as a community want to symbolize for us and i think that's something that i think a lot of uh people just don't realize is that you know citizens have a right to say who symbolizes them and what they said what, what they want to represent them i mean this isn't erasure of history this is we embracing that. who we are as a people you know and so if we say as a people that symbol is no longer representative of us we have the right to remove that and put one up that does representative of us exactly. you know so i, I don't like i don't understand the, this 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 anger or angst about you know nobody's going to suggest you know, if we're going to talk about history, especially in Texas, if we're going to talk about history of the Civil War, start talking about how controversial it was here and how Texas was very, you know, Sam Houston lost his political career because he opposed the war. You know, one of the founding fathers of Texas. So, you know, there's all there's this lot, lots of glorifying of a confederacy that for for reasons that don't even make sense. Not and, even and, just the confederacy, though. And, and we have to admit that 90% of the people who wear those, who fly those flags, you know, I, I honestly think 90% of those people, frankly, they don't care about the South. They don't care that it's racist. It looks cool and they don't give a shit if, what, what somebody else thinks. And that's fundamentally the problem is it, it's just this, I don't care. And since I don't care, nobody should care and you shouldn't care either. Instead of acknowledging that, you know, hey, maybe this is something we need to, you know, it's, I don't care, you care, okay, we can do something since you care so much. It's not that big of a deal. So I, I don't know. It just, it's just so far, the whole issue so far. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> soapbox we should all be on. And like, and, and, and like oh. I said, you know, it, it's, it's not just that it's, in, in, it's systematic. And I mean, like I said, yeah. Andrew Jackson's on fucking money. We voted to have him taken off. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he was supposed to go on the $10 bill. People lost their shit. He, it, uh, Harriet Tubman's now going on the $20 bill, mm -hmm. which she should be because one, 
Andrew Jackson tried to destroy the bank. What the fuck were y'all thinking in the first place? <laughs> um, two, uh, he's a real, real piece of garbage. Like he's a <laughs> human being. Go read all the stuff that he did. Uh, you've you've made your ruling. Now let's see you enforce it. While he made soldiers step over uh, dying indigenous people because they were wow. marching them west in the winter. Um, but I do. I could go all day. <laughs> all, all day but i didn't know that about him wanting to destroy the banks though i'll have to squirrel that away and uh, oh, he bring it banks. up sometime <laughs> he, the, the last time the united states had zero debt was when he was president uh he got rid of it tried to close down the banks all that good stuff he's a real treat but um so as we move forward and i know that your time is valuable we've got one more question for you and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna close you out as 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 the um, as we move forward and the, the youth are really taking to the streets and they're getting behind these rallying cries, um, you know, Black Lives Matter when it first started was this like almost, you know, we weren't even allowed to talk about it at work um, mm. at all because, you know, it had this, you know, connotation because it just ruffled white people's feathers so much. And it seems like defund the police is doing the same thing and people are missing the point and the meaning. Um, and I was just curious, like, where's your, as far as the defund police and, and, and fixing the just absolute shit show that's going on in this country, like, how do we do it? Like, what's, what's our best path forward? Yeah. You know, luckily there, there are communities in this country that have done it. So, you know, we, Camden, we have New Jersey. Yeah. Camden, New Jersey. Um, just read the story on, on that. I think it was in the wall street journal or forget where I read it, uh, today. Um, and, and you even have somebody like Chris Christie, the Republican governor at the time of New Jersey, supporting completely defunding and dismantling and then rebuilding something far different in its place. Um, I've also just been listening to a lot of people who are subject matter experts in this, and they point to other communities. There was one, I think, in Eugene, Oregon, where they've set up uh, mental health care task forces. And so instead of uh, calling 911, when you have a mental health care emergency and having police officers armed responding to that, where things can get out of control. Uh, instead, a social worker, a counselor, I forget the other person who shows up unarmed without tasers or batons, uh, they show up and what they have found in these different cities that have employed non-traditional policing uh, you know, tactics is you, you are actually seeing a reduction in crime as you've seen in Camden, a reduction of uh, use of force against uh, community members. And you're seeing improved outcomes because people are not jailed for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or clinical depression. They're getting help and treatment and medication and counseling for that. Uh, and and we're, we're in those places successfully fighting this trend that has produced the, the largest mental health care system in the United States of America being the system of county jails including here in, in Texas. So I, I really love that uh, Black Lives Matters and uh, other protesters have put this front and center to defund you know, these line items that have over-militarized our, our police and instead invest that money in the human capital of, of your community. Make sure that you have the services, the help, the support, the healthcare necessary to be well and not require police intervention. And then also in, in some necessary cases, completely dismantling those police forces 
and rebuilding them. And I think the, the city council in Minneapolis made the right decision. You, you, you don't have one bad apple. You don't have four bad apples. You, you have a, a system-wide problem in that police department. And only by completely dismantling that system and rebuilding it intentionally with the community members at the table, do you have any hope of, of getting it right? And I know that's controversial and I know that it can be misconstrued. And I know that it's an idea that is dangerous to some, uh, but I think that's where its energy comes from. And, and think of any major change that this country has made where it did not seem dangerous to, to some. You know, uh, John Lewis would not have had the shit beaten out of him on the Edmund Pettus Bridge if the power structure did not fear the change that he was asking for. That was very dangerous to the status quo in America at the time, as were those who had the audacity to get on Greyhound buses throughout the Deep South in the Freedom Ride. So let's, let's look at Black Lives Matter in, in that same context and from that same perspective. What, what they are doing right now is in a very proud, necessary tradition of, of civil rights, and it's the only way that things get better. So I'm, I'm really impressed with what they brought to the table so far. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Black Lives Matter is really doing some incredible work. Um, Black Lives uh, Seven or Black Lives Matter Seven Five Seven has done some incredible work around here. They really, when they were tearing down the uh, uh, the statue in Portsmouth, they were like had it really under control. Like they're 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 very good and they're ma they're making great strides in this in this country. And you're right, John Lewis, who is an absolute icon in American history, wouldn't have gotten his ass kicked on that bridge. You have to you have to fight for what you believe in, and mm -hmm. sometimes people are going to be adverse to that, and and mm -hmm. you know people they're going to be people who are going to get on your side with it, you know. You have to make people a little uncomfortable. Exactly. I mean, people people you don't get change unless people are a little uncomfortable, and you know I think that's one of the things that you know we also talk about this as far as racism in general. Um, you know, sometimes you got to make white people a little uncomfortable about things once in a while to really step back and look at it and self-reflect and say, hey, you know, we do need to make these changes. So if this is something that makes people uncomfortable, gets their attention and says, yeah, hey, this is what we need to take care of, do it. You know, it works. Exactly. This is what happens. It's, if it, it is effective. Done, let's do <laughs> you know, it all day. Maybe, you know, maybe it's a little work for us to explain it, you know, fine. That's our job. <laughs> That's what yeah. we're here for, you know, yeah. to explain it. So to explain yeah. the nuance behind these things, to have that conversation. It's all about starting it's that conversation. all about the conversation. And, and, and you've got to acknowledge that, that the conversation, um, the political action, elections, legislation, um, executive power in the president or the governor, all important and, and very often mm -hmm. at critical moments insufficient to the challenge. And that's when a John Lewis and we, we use his name that there are so many other names that we could we could raise but uh, he stands out because he's just an all-time hero to me you, you need a john lewis who, who's literally willing to risk his his life literally put his life on the line um because the struggle is is that important and he understands that we will not make progress until people are shocked out of their complacency which which he helped and so many others helped to do and, and again i think that's that's what we're seeing happening in this country and it gives me a lot of hope. And I know it's not easy. And I know that so many of those protesters have borne the brunt of rubber bullets and, you know, flash grenades and the, you know, the tear gas and, and everything else that has come their way. And we've all seen the, the images of that. But I also know that they're doing it not for themselves, 
and not only for this generation, it, they, they want to make sure this country makes it for the generations that follow. And I think, again, that's, that's the best tradition of, of civil rights in America. Absolutely. Beto, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you thank for you. just hanging out and answering our questions and for just, you know, really inspiring us and inspiring the show. And it's been fantastic. Um, before you go, I want you want to tell you guys, look down in the comments. Um, there is a link for um, Under the Tree. Under the Tree is a foundation that was started by a friend of mine. He was actually the first guest on the show, uh, Mr. Jacob Lelish. Um, he created this um under the tree to help raise money. Uh, he gave my school $2,000 worth of school supplies. And now he's trying to develop a homeless care package to make sure that the homeless are taken care of because the pandemic has been on, hard on everybody. It's been hard on um, the homeless in, in, in a way that none of us can fathom. So he's putting these together. Please donate anything you can. All right. So let's keep on donating, keep on getting out and let's keep on looking ahead to Beto days. Thank mm-hmm. you.